And Lord, just as your children, we're so thankful. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may take your seats. If you'd bring up the word cloud, you'll be able to see that that we are at New Covenant Church and we want to be known as a Bible-believing church, gospel-driven. And because the gospel has changed us, we want to reach our region, uh, not just our neighborhood. We want to... uh, to be intentional about the things that we engage in uh, so that we are always communicating the gospel by our words and our deeds and even by our conduct, that we're friendly, caring. Uh, and then as you come to church, as we said, sometimes you will be quieted and sometimes you'll be encouraged to be loud for Christ. Uh, but we are unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today we're looking at the, the, uh, the, the epistle of the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 12 and we're, uh, uh, we've been marching through this book this year, but from the other direction, Romans in reverse. We started at the end and uh, today we're wrapping up chapter 12. There's 21 verses in chapter 12, but let us uh, look at the ones that are printed in the, uh, in the text for us, uh, which is uh, a short passage from uh, verses 16 to 20. So let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible, inspired words as given in the original. Uh, in chapter 12, uh, Paul is writing to believers like you and I. They're from the big city. Uh, it's one of the, uh, the, the places over in Italy uh, where they had developed a lot of the bigger buildings. They had uh, a lot of different uh, religions there. But the reason why it was so built up, it was like Washington, D.C. for us. That's where the head of state was. That's where they had all the, the, the pomp and circumstance, even the Colosseum. Everything was in Rome. But as he writes there, the, the footprint of Christianity was not very big. Uh, this, is, this is probably written about uh, A.D. 60-something, 60 63 or so. Uh, you can roughly say about three decades after Jesus had died, was buried, and uh, resurrected, and then ascended to heaven. That was on Pentecost Sunday, which would have been about, 50, uh, about seven weeks, 50 days uh, since the resurrection, and that happened last week. So we're on the Sunday after Pentecost Sunday. But when, when Paul wrote this, only 30 years had passed. 30 years. And people had taken the gospel to Rome. There's a bunch of people there. You read about at least the 25 plus that are listed in chapter 16. But um, Rome was not known as as a mecca of Christianity. It was not the place to go if you wanted to know about Christ. So Paul is writing this book to the people there at Rome, the educated people. And he explains more detail than just about anywhere else about the doctrines of grace. But in chapter 12, he starts telling them about how to apply that to their life. And uh, we're going to be looking at these verses. So if you're with me, chapter 12, verse 16, uh, the apostle is writing to Christians and he says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate, associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one for evil, give, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, that gives you a little dose of what Paul was writing to the people in Rome, to Christians. But I can't stop because I want to, I want to answer the question that was on the front of the bulletin, and I want to tie it all together for you with an answer to the question. Uh, in the first picture there, you can see uh, the, the gavel comes down in a court case, and uh, the judgment comes. And uh, what is God's verdict? What does God say about the society in which we live, about the culture that we find ourselves? Does God condemn everything? And the answer is, in verse 21, he says, uh, and I'll read it for you in chapter 12, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The answer is, is that God is not in the business of trying to squash all of this culture that we find ourselves, because you can go to different countries, you can go to different continents, and you can find different settings. 
Our, our one sister just got back from, from the Philippines, and it's a little different there than it is here. And for some of, those, some of you that have been in the car recently, you've, been, you, you've probably paid five-plus dollars per gallon. Uh, but when you've gone to a different state, there's sometimes a, a different appeal because the legislatures in different places do things differently. Do we give up on them? The answer that the scripture tells us is don't be overcome by them. And uh, I'm going to be bringing that to our attention in just a few moments. Uh, since all of this is in context in chapter 12, I'd like to read for you the whole, the whole chapter. I'd like to be able to give you, by way of introduction, a picture of what Paul is thinking. It's not just that little snippet that we're looking at. So in chapter 12, Paul has, or chapter 11, Paul has just finished up these words. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been God's counselor? And then he ends up saying, for from him and through him and to him... That is to God be all things. And we're going to finish with the benediction of that. But then he shifts gears in chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, because of God's mercy, that you will present your bodies as a living sacrifice, that your body would be holy, that it would be acceptable to God. In other words, what you do with your body, that it would be good and acceptable to God, and this is your spiritual worship, or this is what the scripture says in the old King James, where they said, this is your spiritual duty. Because of what God's done, because of the mercies of God, you need to put your body in the offering plate and let and be a living sacrifice. Verse 2, then he goes on to explain a little bit more. Do not be like the world. Don't fit in with the world. Don't conform to the world's ways. Instead, instead of the word conformed, he wants you to be transformed. And of course, we already mentioned that before. Tr being trans today seems to be pretty popular, at least in the woke culture. But this is not the trans that they're talking about. God already established the transformation. It's not from one gender to another, or it's not from, from one way to another way. Being transformed is being renewed in, after Christ. Let me explain it to you. He says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, by the, by the working of your renewed mind, you may discern things that are good. In other words, the will of God, and the will of God if it's good and acceptable and it's perfect. In other words, with this new mind, having a transformed mind, or as I like to call it, a helicopter view of faith, a higher elevation, when you get to see what God sees, you get this renewed mind. And then he says, with this renewed mind, he says, verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, and he's writing to Christians, he says, by God's grace, let me tell you the way it really is. Let me give you the skinny. He says, don't use that renewed mind to think wrong thoughts. And the first wrong thought that most all of us are prone to do is to think that we're in the center of the universe. He says, don't think that way. When God gives you this transformation, he gives you a new mind that says, you're not the middle of the, of the world, Jesus is. Listen here, he says, do not, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with a sober judgment. He says, but you ought to have this sobriety about you. You ought not to be just flighty and, and, and uh, just going with every flow or uh, every wind of doctrine, as it says in James chapter one. Don't be caught up with the fads of the culture he has, you're being transformed and you think with sober judgment. You think, you think through things. And he says in verse, uh, uh, at the end there of, of verse 3, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So if you're more mature in the faith or if you have a higher elevation of faith, you're going to see further. You're going to see more clearly. You're going to understand the times a little bit better than if you were just uh, one foot above the ground. Uh, you won't be able to see how far down the path as you would if you were 100 feet up. He says in verse 5, or in verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, and the members not all, do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So this first section here, you have this transformation taking place, and your mind sees things differently. You see what God sees. You see more of what God sees. And he says, so with, this, with the mind of Christ, you don't look at yourself being so important, but you see yourself in, in, in the context of the group. You, you, you see yourself in connection with Christ. 
And he says, so, he says, this is the way it is in the body of Christ. You're just one of the parts of the body. And he says, when you look at your own body, because remember, he just talked about your flesh in verse 1. Present your physical body to God. Now he says, there's this spiritual body of Christ. And he says, you're a part of that body. And, he, and here it makes me think about the other verses in Corinthians where he says, hey, you can't mess with your body. If you bang your finger over here, it's going to have an effect on the whole body. And he says, if you think that you're more important because you're the eye instead of being the thumb, or if you think that you're more significant because you're the big toe instead of the little toe, he says, you're missing the point. The point is, you are a part of the body of Christ. And he says, once you start having that mindset, that renewed mind, because God's transformed you, you're like, hey, I belong. And he doesn't just stop there with belonging as a part of the body, but he says, you've got something to do in this body. And if you look at the next verse 6, having gifts differing according to the grace given to us, let's use them. So he says, hey, yes, you're, you belong. You're in the body of Christ just like all the other parts. But then he says, you're in the body with a purpose. If you're a spleen, maybe we don't know what your purpose is. But you're in there. Everybody else kind of can figure out why you're there. Okay? But then he says you've got gifts that differ according to what God gave you. Because grace, God gave it to you. You didn't get to say, hey, God, I want two of those and one of those. Or you said, I don't like my hand. I'm going I'm to dump it and get a new set of cards. No, he gave you what he gave you. And when people are deceived into thinking that you can throw back what God gave you, you're only fooling yourself. And a lot of our culture is doing that today. When they want to transition away from a godly culture to a godless culture, this is what they do. But he says, uh, if you have this mind of Christ, you're going to see you, that you belong and that you have a purpose. And he gave two things as an illustration of using the gift that you've been given. The one has to do with prophecy and the other has to do with service. And I'm not going to get into the detail, but prophecy is explaining the word of God. And service is helping other people in, in their spiritual journey. And you can look at that list, how he explains it for you. If prophecy in proportion to your faith, but in service, it's in serving or in teaching or in exhorting or in being generous or in being uh, a leader, uh, all those kind of things... You see yourself differently with the mind of Christ. Today's text builds upon that. Because in verse 9, he says, let your love be genuine. As I've said before, the only reason he said this is because many people who were in the Christian community were fake. And he was trying to expose that Christians are not just supposed to speak Christianese as if it's a language. They're supposed to be Christ followers. Christ is supposed to work, live through you. And the love that you have for other people, the love that you have for God is first given to you. It's like you become a, a, a hose. It, you, you're attached on one side and God pours it into you. And on the other side, that's what comes out, what he first poured into you. It's really beautiful when you realize that he says, let love be genuine. And then he goes on to list about how this genuine love should be. As I mentioned in a previous sermon, this love needs to be sincere. And, the, and the, one of the translators put it this way. It's uh, using the, the French word, uh, in other words, it's without wax or without masks. In both cases, he says, uh, you don't want to have love that is like, a, uh, he used the illustration of pottery. I, I'm using it again because it's really helped me. Uh, he said that when you used to buy a piece of pottery in the past, you know, people would do the work to make it work. But sometimes there were thinner parts in other areas. And so in order to sell that, sometimes people would reinforce it with wax. They'd take some wax and put it in there. And uh, when you would buy this piece of pottery, you thought that you were getting a great piece of pottery until you poured some boiling water in it. And of course, what happens to the wax? It melts and the leaks are exposed and your piece of pottery is useless. It's been a hoax. And so he says, don't let your love be filled with fillers. Your love needs to be genuine all the way through, 100% love. And also he says, don't let your love be with masks. 
which in today's world, that's always misunderstood. But he said, in the old days, if you were going to go to a theater or a drama, the, the costumes weren't elaborate. They would put a mask over your face. And you'd be able to tell whether you were a pirate. You could tell whether you, you were a, uh, a king. Or they, they would have this vicious that you'd put over your face. And that, therefore, you would play the part, an actor. And so what Paul is telling the people in Rome, don't act like a Christian. Sometimes it's hard for a preacher to say that. I'd rather you act like a Christian than not. But what he's telling you is the love that you have ought not to be acted. It should not be fake. It's not just some kind of role that you're playing. And that's where he begins to explain this. And this is our text for today. In order to set the stage for you, because we're not going to drop back to chapter 12 too many other times. So from chapter 12, verse 9 to 21... He spends a lot more, most of the time now about having a mind that understands what love is. And the difference here, and if you bring up the slide about the triperspectival, uh, many times we don't really get what it means to have, uh, to have all three working on us. I be, I, I've been overwhelmed that Christianity involves your whole being. Just like there's a trinity with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and in God, three persons, everything's complete. I believe for Christians, there are three elements of our salvation. It's what we believe, it's what we feel, and it's also what we do. Head, heart, and hands. In this particular text, you've already heard that Paul says in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, he says, you've got, a, you've got hands, that body of yours. Use it for the kingdom purposes. He said... Don't have idle hands. Don't waste your time. But he says, present your, your physical self to God. It's pretty cool. And so you realize that he starts with the hands, but then he shifts in the next verse. He says, don't be like the world. Don't just be a busybody. Don't just go through the motions of acting and all that. He says, you need to have a transformed transform mind. In other words, you believe things that are true rather than believe things that are fake. In our culture, there's a lot of voices that are out there, and it's really hard for people to discern even what's right and wrong anymore. My goodness, when, when courts will actually bring their gavel down and say, this is okay, when God has said it's not okay, who are you going to believe? It's an easy one for us. Hard to practice. You have to obey God rather than man. Just because a majority vote, just because a majority or a consensus allows people to do whatever they want to do, it doesn't make it right or it doesn't make it beautiful and it doesn't erase Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to people, but the ways thereof lead to death and destruction and the demise. When I look at the triperspectival thing, I want you to know that it is not just that your body needs to be doing what God's called you to do with the number of years that you have. But you need to believe right. That's why you have a transformed life that starts with understanding. And so he's been explaining the first thoughts are about yourself this, and, and how you fit into the body of Christ and what you're here for. And then he says, I want you to understand how your love is supposed to work too. It needs to not be phony. It's not just Christianese, as I said, going through the motions. Now, th this is where the difficulty comes in because our hearts. How much control do you have over your heart? I mean, when you go to an ice cream parlor and you're trying to pick out what flavor, you know, sometimes, you know, for me, I like to say, give me a taste. I'll try this flavor or this flavor or this flavor. And once you pick the one that's, that, that satisfies the best, that's what you take. You can make a decision. But what does my heart really want? Do you fall in love by choice? Do, the, do you love things because... Uh, you, you've volitionally engaged it. That's why part of this is a little interesting, that Paul is giving instruction. He's teaching them with words. He's giving them applications to show what they should do. But in, in reality, he's trying to explain that you ought to be able to look inside your soul and see if it's there or not. Do you really have genuine love? I asked that question about your dad. Was it hard for you to say whether you had a good dad or a bad dad? Was it easy to have one adjective? Or did you have to write four or five? Or did you feel like your dad was bipolar, that he was this way and this way? My point being is, look at your own heart right now. 
That's what Paul is writing to the believers in Rome. And he says, look at your heart. What do you experience? Do you really love? Or are you just an actor? Or are you just a bad actor? Because there's a lot of people going around today that don't even fake loving. I mean, they wouldn't even let you get in the lane in front of, you know, they wouldn't even let you merge. And that goes for Christians. I'm going to tell them they shouldn't sneak up on the side. You know what I'm talking about. Now, this is where the, the rubber meets the road. And as we come to the Lord's table in a minute, you'll see. This is instruction about love. And it's begging the question, do you experience that love? Now, having laid this foundation, let me read this text for you again. In verse 9. And it's interesting because it's almost like a uh, rapid fire uh, gun. Bang, 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 bang. In fact, there's, there is 18 particular things that he tells you about genuine love. And each one that hits you, I wonder whether it's piercing you or whether you've got your force field up and say, that doesn't matter, that doesn't matter, that doesn't matter. Listen to these things. If you have genuine love and your head's supposed to understand this, is this what you experience? Do you abhor what is evil? Do you hang on with all your might to what's good? Do you really love each other as part of the family of God? Do you have this affection for one another? Do you actually do more than what other people do? Or do you try to practice that principle, do unto others as you would have them do unto you? No, this text tells us that if you have genuine love that's not acting, that's not going through the motions, you're going to outdo everybody else. And you're not going to do it because you're showing off. You're going to do it because you love them. He says you should have zeal. Don't be lazy. Don't just blow things off and say, oh, well, we'll do it later. He says you should have a fervent spirit. If you have love, you're going to want to get involved. You're not just going to sit there and be a spectator. You're going to try to be a part of it to make it happen. You'll serve the Lord, in other words, in verse 11. Then he says in verse 12, are you rejoicing with hope? Or are you going around with despair? We hear the, the, some of the most, most recent rulings or some of the information that's come out in some of the, the videos that you see about the election integrity and all these kind of things. Do you go around with utter despair? He says, you ought to be rejoicing. You've got hope. Because hope that we have is not in this culture, but it's in eternity. If you go to the next one, he says, are you patient in tribulation? Is your love allowing you to not get so angry and ticked off every time things don't go right? I might turn the question around and say, does anything ever go right? I mean, does every, does any time, does it go forward without a problem? It's kind of like getting in your car. You know, you, you think, oh, it's great. I got a new car or I got a car that's, that I really love. But, you know, you can drive it for only so far and then it needs help. You got to either put more gas in it, new spark plugs, new wires, or you, you have to do something more to it. Are you patient with all these difficulties and troubles? Do you find yourself talking to God, constant in prayer, end of verse 12? Is your genuine love with God causing you to talk to him about everything, even without ceasing? Are you involved in contributing to the needs of the saints? In other words, do you really take notice of what the offering is? Or maybe I should ask a better question, what the offering's for? Have you ever seen what we send our missions monies towards? What, what, what bang do we get for the buck that's been invested in the kingdom of God? But he says, do you, does your love generate this idea that you want to help? That you want to contribute? You want to let go of some of the funds that you're holding on to? He says, verse, uh, verse 13, do you seek to be hospitable? Those people that you meet, do you ever offer them a cup of cold water? Do you ever take them out to lunch? Do you ever try to help them a little bit? Open the door for them? Verse 14, he goes on to say, you notice how this bang, 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 bang. Uh, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Whew. Do you go around bad-mouthing people? You might actually describe them accurately. 
Is that blessing them? Then he goes on in verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, which is uh, taken from the wisdom of Solomon back in, in, in uh, Ecclesiastes. There's a time for crying. There's a time for rejoicing. He says, hey, genuine love not only acknowledges that sometimes there's sadness and sometimes there's cause for rejoicing, like when your team wins, or like I said, for sadness when one of your relatives dies and you're at a funeral. But he says, if you notice here, rejoice with those who are having these. Again, it's not about you. It's about you helping others who are going through these things. And this is where our text picked up, where I read already, are you living in harmony or is there discord? Then he goes in verse 13, or in verse 16, he goes on, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. These things are saying, do you look down at everybody around you? Do you think you're better than they? Do you only hang around with people that, that make you feel better or that give you a certain class? Then he goes with a shift of gear in verse 17. Do not repay evil for evil. And then he says, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Then I ask you, is your love genuine that, that you try to live at peace with all kinds of people? He says, is your love genuine or do you try to avenge yourself? You try to get even. He says, you shouldn't. If you have this genuine love, you'll leave it to the wrath. It's actually not the wrath of God, but you'll leave it to the wrath, as the text says. And then he quotes from Proverbs, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then he says, instead of all those things, let me give you a positive take. In the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your en enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. That's what you ought to be doing. That's genuine love. And then he gets this interesting twist. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on their head. And you over he says, do not be overcome by all the evil in this world and culture, but be overcoming of that. So now that we've read it, I can quickly highlight these things for you as we come to the table. The three points of the sermon are this genuine Christian love, which I call uh, from, from chapter or verse 9, let your love be genuine. This genuine Christian love transforms us uh, into a, an affectionate family member. That's what it does. I want you to understand that, and then we'll make the applications real quick. Secondly, this genuine Christian love transforms us into a peaceful neighbor relationship. In other words, within our culture, we see this. We're not like the world. We actually have a peace that passes the world's understanding. And thirdly, this genuine Christian love transforms us into spiritual overcomers through Christ. If I could highlight those, now that we've read the text and you've seen it pretty clearly, I want to, to emphasize here that the transforming effects uh, of, of making us a Christian, or I call it an affectionate family member, there are 13 of them. Of the 18, the first 13 are to one another. And I, if, you, if you have it on the back of your, uh, of your fourth point, you'll be able to see that I've highlighted or underlined. In verse 10, it said, love one another. At the end of verse 10, it says, outdo one another. If you go down to verse 13, it says, contribute to the needs of the saints or to the other Christians. And then if you go down to verse 16, live in harmony with, help me out. Okay, if you understand the emphasis that I'm trying to draw is, is that these first 13 imperatives about Christian love, therefore Christians between Christians. In other words, inside the church community, these ought to be normative. That's why when we had the word cloud up there and we talk about being friendly and being uh, helpful, uh, all these things are just, this is what genuine Christian love does. It's really beautiful. Uh, if I go through this list for you, it's kind of neat to hear. Uh, we care. In other words, uh, we respect. We're zealous. We are positive and optimistic. We're committed. We're mindful. We meet the needs because we're compassionate. We allow others, uh, allow others to see our hospitality. Um, we are gracious. We connect with people. We feel their pain uh, we, when, we, when they weep and when they cry uh, and when they also rejoice. And then it says we actually want to be in harmony so we engage others. Because harmony means that 
two or three notes are playing at the same time. You're not just being isolated and letting one note play. But we participate with the group. Now, those 13 things to love one another is really neat. And you ought to spend some more time with them and not just have it inside your head, but also see how you've experienced it. You know, when I think about um, outdo one another in showing honor, that one's really cool. Pick somebody. Pick somebody in the church that, that, that honors people. And then outdo them. Now, that wouldn't be to show off. It would be to show you how difficult or how easy it is when God is working in you or how difficult it is for you if God isn't. Because it's really hard to act these things when they're not genuine. Now, I told you that the emphasis here is on the last five. I believe that the 13 there are within the church to be an affectionate uh, church member. But the second part of the sermon there is about the, being a peaceful neighbor. Let me look at those things because if you see uh, beginning there in verse uh, 16b, then it shifts to a different feeling. And I'll read these out loud again. 16b, and he says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. I don't believe this is talking about inside the church because in the church, we're all brothers and sisters. We're not even uh, nephews. We're not even cousins. If we're in Christ, we're all children of God. And therefore, that makes us brothers and sisters, even if you're from the same family. If you, just like my son is here today, in Christ, we're brothers. He says, don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. That means there are people that you're going to run into that, that don't have the means in this culture and in society. He says, don't keep yourself up here with your nose up. Then he goes on to say, don't be wise in your own sight. Don't go around with this different kind of an arrogance that makes you think that you know everything about everything when you don't. Now, you may know the one who knows everything, him, and you can talk to him about all those things, but you don't need to be wise in your own sight. Then he goes in verse 17, repay no one. And this is, again, not the church people. This is not one another, but he's talking about all the people that you're in the community with. Everybody that's in your, in your uh, subset of, of the world. He says, don't give them evil for evil, but give, them th give, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of, of everybody that's looking. It's not just the church community, but this is where, just like when we ordain uh, one of the new elders coming up, he's supposed to have a good reputation from those who are without. Because people that are outside the church still should be noticeable because they can see what honor is whether it's happening or whether it's not. And in verse 18, as far as it's possible, and it depends on you, you're living as a neighbor, try to get along. Live in harmony, if you can, with all. And that's where he comes and he makes an application. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Don't go after justice in your own standard. You know, you've seen the scales of justice. Um, as I've said before, I, I, I have a neighbor, a new neighbor, and he leaves his light on all night, and I thought about how to fix that. I don't think he's in church today, but if he's listening online, he's a good neighbor. But I still am revealing what's gone through my head. Do I really love my neighbor? You know, I thought about it. If I had a BB gun, I could fix it. You know, I thought about that if I just knocked on the door and I asked him nicely, that would maybe go over well, but it also could ruin a relationship. Uh, so then I thought, well, maybe for Christmas, we could get him some of those, uh, those the, what do you call them, motion detectors? I don't mind his light being on. I just don't want it on all night. I don't want it shining in my window. So, of course, I could probably get bigger shades for my own house. But, but do you see what's going on? I'm thinking of all these things. I'm trying to avenge myself of something I don't like. He probably doesn't even have a clue that it even bothers me. Beloved, don't try to solve things according to your own standard of justice. Verse 19, part B. Leave it to the wrath of God. Does God have wrath? 
If you'll flip over to Romans 1.18, you'll see that he surely does. Paul opened up this letter and he says, the wrath of God is a big deal. It's being poured out and it's coming down hard against the people in your community that have given themselves over to unclean things who are, who are devilish in their thoughts. They, they're abandoning the natural things and they're worshiping the creatures rather than the creator. I mean, I could go down the list. Romans 1 is pretty big. Once you realize that the wrath of God is being poured out, then, he's, then Paul is saying to the Christians, you don't have to help God. You don't have to let your wrath couple with his wrath so that there's more wrath. You know, I'm going to come up and say, man, am I angry with you, and God is too. No, what he's trying to say here is, God didn't put you into this world to be God. He said, he's put you in this world, and if it's possible, be a, a peaceful neighbor. He said, why? Because you are at peace in your own heart. The other people may not be at peace, but you are at peace. Because God has forgiven your sin. And when I, when I look through here, he says, don't, uh, don't uh, leave it to God to handle it. Leave it to God's wrath. It's sufficient. Let me tell you, God is by no means going to clear the guilty. And you may look around just like I did when I drove through D.C. recently and I saw this one guy drive up the whole side thing and he went way ahead of everybody and slipped in and, and my goodness, he got there before I did. So unfair. You know what? I almost pulled out in front of him to stop him. <laughs> Stick my vehicle halfway to block him. And then I was thinking of these verses and then my wife reminded me. <laughs> it's not for us to be the, the, the judge. We don't have to condemn. The wrath of God is sufficient to take care of all of it. And many times we don't trust God. And that's why the rest of this verse says, he says, vengeance is mine. God's already promised that he will handle it. They will not get away with it. See if you can know this verse. I know you know it. Be sure your sin will. Do you really believe it? No, you don't, because we want to help. We want to help God speed it up. You know what I'm talking about. We can't be patient. We, we can't endure all those things. Oh, oh, that's one of the things that we're supposed to be patient in tribulation. We're supposed to be constant in prayer. We're supposed to be thinking about the needs that others in the church have. I mean, isn't it interesting how you, you just get talked off the ledge because there's no justification for us to pretend that we're God and that we have to have vengeance. We have to avenge ourselves. Vengeance is God's. He'll take care of it. Believe it. And then he says... Let me show you how this works. It's contrary to the world. This is what a transformed mind does. It understands how, how genuine love and practice actually changes things. He says, if your enemy is hungry, take away the food from him. No. You know how foolish it is to even imply that. If you see somebody that's starving, feed them. If this enemy is so thirsty, you don't hoard your water, but you try to meet that need. And he says, when you do this, the way that this genuine Christian love works is that you heap burning coals on his head. Now, I've asked a lot of you to be able to solve that mystery for me because I've never seen in my lifetime of 50 plus years anybody take coals and put them on people's heads. Now, of course, I think there's some theologians that went back and they, they looked back in the culture in Egypt and they found that in Egypt, apparently, when someone was contrite, they used to have some kind of a metal bull that they would put on their head like they were carrying it around. And uh, on top of that, they would have these coals, these hot coals. And I guess if you were to see that, according to the ancient custom, that would mean that you had a, a repentant or a, you had a, a different spirit about you. You know, for me, I'm looking at that saying, you're pretty weird. Why in the world would you put hot things on your head that might singe that special thing that might burn your hair up and you'd be like me? You know, I, my point being is, is that that is one interpretation of it. Nobody's been for sure what this is. 
except we do know that Paul didn't come up with this. Okay, if you'll bring up the Proverbs 25, you're going to be able to see, and I have it in my text here, uh, this is where Solomon was the one that came up with this. And uh, pretty interesting, if, if you look here in Proverbs uh, 25, verse 21, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Sound familiar? And he goes on in verse 22, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. So, I can tell you this, that Paul just did not come up with this. He was repeating what was written by Solomon. And Solomon wrote this as one of the wisest men in the world. So now we're like scratching our heads saying, well, what does this really, really mean? Well, let me give you a little bit more context for what, what he wrote in Proverbs, because Paul doesn't do that when he's writing to Rome. He says um, in verse 11 of tw chapter 25, you don't have that on the screen yet, but it, it says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. And he ends up starting off a section here in Proverbs 25, and he says, hey, your words can make a difference. Okay? He says, um, if I jump down, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of gifts that he does not give. In other words, he says, when you look at the clouds and they don't, they don't uh, bring any rain down, it's almost like someone who says they're, they're going to give you something and they never do. You see, all of these, they're, they're, they're illustrations. But now when you get down to this um, verse, um, verse 20, whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Now, just give you a couple illustrations. He's, he's setting us up for verse 21, which is where the quote comes in. In the previous verse, Solomon is saying, if you sing these beautiful, lovely songs, these ballads, to somebody who's miserable, verse 20, to, if you're singing to someone with a heavy heart, he said, is like the one who takes off a garment on a cold day. So if we had Sean come and play a song for all of us, and he's doing some kind of an upbeat song, and all of us are at a funeral, we're miserable, we're grumpy, we're sad. We can't be comforted. He's almost like saying, hey, the people are not receiving it. And he said, this is the same kind of folly as if you're shivering on a cold day and, and you've got a nice warm coat, but it's cold outside, and you take your coat off just so that you can shiver more. He said, it doesn't make any sense. He says, don't be foolish like this. And that's why he says, if your enemy is hungry... Give him something to eat. He says, do the contrary thing to what has actually been going on. The world would say, don't take your coat off when it's cold. And he said, the world would tell you, don't feed people that are hungry if they're your enemies. And he says, if they're thirsty, the world wouldn't want you to give them drink. They would want you to withhold because they would treat it like war. You want them to lose. And he says, when you do this, you heap these burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. The north wind blows forth rain, and a backbiting tongue will bring angry looks. He says, these are the things, they have a, a tit for tat, a, a response. If you do this, then you get that. So if you, if you have this ugly look, you're going to get people looking at you with an angry look. And he says, if the north wind blows, you know it's going to bring you rain. So, so if you're going to feed your enemy... He says, you're going to get something in return. And, and in fact, he goes on here, it is better to live in a corner of the housetop than to live in a shared house with a quarrelsome wife. That's where that text comes in. He says, it, it, all of these things that are juxtaposed to each other, the contrary, I think it comes down to this, is that when you're, when you're heaping coals on people's heads, it is not to make them miserable. It is actually to break through the barrier that holds them back. The world expects you to give them what they would give you. But remember at chapter 12, don't be like the world. Be transformed. You've got this renewed mind, and God's giving you genuine love because it's his love flowing through you. And he says, don't give people what they deserve. Give them grace. Give them kindness. Trust the Lord that he will bring the judgment upon them. 
Vengeance is his, he'll do it. He says, when you heap these coals on their head, quoting from Solomon, which goes way, way back there, he's basically saying, this breaks the pattern. This messes with them. They don't grasp it. What? You're my enemy. Why are you being kind? If you could bring up 1 Corinthians 13, then it prepares for the Lord's table. This genuine Christian love makes us an overcomer. Because when you understand that love, which is what he's teaching in this text, he says, love is patient. This Christian love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't always want what everybody else has. It doesn't go around boasting, saying, I got more than you. When you go through and you, and you see, even on the next verse, it is not rude. It is not, it's not insisting on being focused on itself. The person who has genuine Christian love is not irritable and doesn't hold grudges for the rest of their life. And if you go a little further on these verses in 1 Corinthians 13, it does not rejoice when they see bad things going on. You know, it's like, good thing they're going to finally get what they deserve. No, the rejoicing when you have that Christian love is only in things that are lovely, just, pure, and a good report, Philippians 4.8. If you bring the next verse up, you can also see that this Christian love bears all things. It doesn't just get erased when things get a little bit difficult. It, be it believes the best. It hopes because it knows that Christ is working in us, working it together for good. And we're trusting him because vengeance is his. He'll take care of it on his timetable. And that's why genuine Christian love is going to stay with you not only through all the days of this life, but throughout all of eternity. The reason why I can tell you this is because the communion table and the empty cross. We, we are overcomers because he overcame. Greater love hath no man than this, that he would lay down his life for us. And when you realize the one another's, you know, when I, when I read through that text, love one another with affection, outdo one another in giving honor, have zeal in what you're doing, serving the Lord, rejoice in what's ahead of us, endure the tribulation, talk to the Lord through it all, meet the needs of the saints that are around you, be hospitable to those who are, are unfortunate, bless those who are mistreating you and saying, crucify, crucify. If you understand what I'm trying to paint this picture, Jesus had genuine love. And when he went to Calvary's cross, he knew what he was doing. He said, vengeance is the Father's. I don't have to give these people what they deserve. And how do I know Jesus was doing that? From Calvary's cross, one of the first words. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing and putting me here. They don't see the significance of what they've done in putting the king of glory to death. When you realize it, then when I apply this to the world, repay no man evil for evil, but give what is honorable in the sight of all. Christ did not give the world what they deserved. They'll get it later. He's God. He knows Vengeance is his, but it comes in his timing, not in ours. We come to the Lord's table today, and this is a time for confession. As the elders, if you would come forward and sit on the front row, I want to ask you these questions. Do you have genuine Christian love? We've been explaining it, but are you experiencing it? Do you really love one another? I could take you to 1 John, where the, where the Apostle John explains a lot about how you'll know your Christians by your love. Brothers and sisters, if Christ has loved you, then we are overcomers of this culture. We are not bound to be uh, under, its, under its thumb. Yes, they may try to make things difficult. They may take away our liberties. They may, they may accuse us falsely of a lot of things. Let me quote you, Jesus said, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. If they did it to me, 
What do you expect them to do to you, my followers? Don't worry about all that stuff. Rejoice in hope. Let your love be genuine, and God will repay in time. And praise God for us. He has already paid our price. That, that is why there is no more condemnation for them that are in Christ. This table is for those people who are no longer condemned. You've been forgiven. You've been given a righteousness that's not of your own doing. It is not because you kept the Ten Commandments, but because Jesus did, and he gives you his righteousness to your account imputed. Brothers and sisters, let us pray, and then we'll distribute this. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these com common elements of bread and juice. We thank you that they're not just a snack before lunch, but they are a sacrament that you have ordained. That on the night in which you was betrayed, on the night in which you were being false, you would be falsely accused. You would be betrayed by one of your own. You would be accused of being something you're not. And the tears, even, and the cry that we hear in the room, it was so much worse than we could have ever imagined. As you were beaten and bruised, the chastisement for our peace was laid upon you. Oh, Lord, on that night, before it all happened, you said, this is my body. I'm doing this for you. Genuine love from Christ. Lord, as we receive these elements today, I pray that we might first examine ourselves. The scripture says that we ought not to take this lightly. For some that just blew it off and treated it like a snack, they even suffered and they, were even, they even died. Lord, this is significant stuff. And we don't have to confuse, be confused that the bread or the juice becomes your blood and body. Lord, we realize that you are present here. And that you have ordained that in the giving and the receiving of bread and, and, and the fruit of the vine, that our faith is strengthened. And so, Lord, as we come to the table, may we look more full in your wonderful face. Through the eyes of faith, may we see that your love for us is not just that you're sitting back in an ivory tower, but you're like the prodigal God that runs towards the prodigal son. Lord, you loved us while we were yet unlovely and you would receive us into your fellowship into your kingdom into your home to come dine at your table lord we see it and say it'd be better for us just to be a servant in in our father's house and you saw fit to make us have a seat as the table is prepared for us we thank you as as it's coming around that we are forgiven and I pray that we might not hold grudges, that we might not have a fake love, but a genuine one, without masks, without wax. Thank you, Lord, for demonstrating your love to us and by pouring that love in our hearts that we'll receive in communion in Jesus' name.